Hello, welcome to Jimmy's Family. This is just a random uh, summer, balmy night summer podcast out in the courtyard. You can probably hear the crickets. My name's James, and I'm joined by my old friend Matt. Hello. Hi, Matt. How are you going? I'm fantastic. Uh, Matt is a Perth expat, but uh, he's <laughs> back in town for Christmas. Um, how are you going, Matt? Oh, I'm good. It's wonderful to be back in the Wawa. What's this? Recording this on your birthday, in fact. It is my birthday. Twenty seventh of December. Yes. And twenty fifteen for historical purposes. So where are you working? I mean, obviously, you don't want to talk too much on live about it, but where are you working now? I'm this is st- not at the uh, op I'm shop, st- which is where you were last time we talked. Um. Well, I'm now the HR manager for the entire organisation. Also oh, for the whole company. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All right. Yeah. So you're so I've a, made a rapid. I've made a rapid transformation from, you know, the height of my skill set being sorting the shoes to actually running the whole HR strategy for the organisation. Awesome. It is pretty awesome. Um, and this is, uh, what did that re- require? Moving to a different area, working in a different area of the city. No, no, no. It's all in the same site. Okay. Yeah. Mm. But we've had a very big year. We took over our equivalent organisation in Bondi. Yeah. So that that involved a, a massive sort of expansion on all fronts. So okay. the total number of staff has doubled in a year. It's been really quite a rapid period of growth. So Do you, do you have to go to Bondi? Sometimes. All right. What's, the, what's the commute like from where you are? Oh... Well, where I live, I can walk to King's Cross. Mm-hmm. I have to catch a bus to Bondi, but it's still, you know, sort of a half hour journey. Yep. It's not far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you drive in Sydney? Um, sometimes. So, what's it like? Fun? Yeah. Oh, driving in Sydney. The, um, it's different to Perth. Yeah. Mm. I mean, there's a big People drive. in the middle. Well, yes, but, but it's the... Um, the pace and the attitude of people driving is, is very different. It's, it's kind of crazed. When I moved to Sydney, I had to get used to how drivers treat zebra crossings. Yeah. I think this is a good example because, you know, in Perth, somebody will wait for you to drag your sorry ass all the way across the zebra crossing. Yeah, yeah. In Sydney, once you're, ba- once you're one step past the midway point of that zebra crossing, the car will zoom past behind you. Yeah, and that's right. just the accepted norm. Yeah, which okay. is very different to here. Yeah. Um, so it's. I mean, I'm 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 a driver who isn't afraid to use the horn. Yeah. Okay. And that comes in handy. Right. In Sydney. How about to? That's one thing about the future I'm looking forward to is just not having to drive anymore. Just have self-driving cars. Self-driving cars. Well, I'm an enormous fan of Uber now. That's true. Yeah. The Prime Minister would be very proud of me. Yeah. Um, for embracing disruptive technologies. Yes. And, um, you know, really, where I live, I'm, I'm not a stone's throw from any train station. I'm, I've got to walk 10, 15 minutes to a train. So I find that Uber's much more convenient. I mean, public transport isn't that cheap. 
to yeah. begin with. And mm -hmm. so if it's just a short trip, actually works out. Based on the convenience, it's much better to take an Uber. So if you just want to go just from an inner city, like from here, we're in Perth, so from Leadville, which is only a couple of clicks from Perth as the bird flies, but it mm. takes a while to just weave in. How much would that cost in, in an Uber? Well, you see, the Uber minimum is $8. So whatever, you know, however short your, your journey is, if it's less than less than that, and it works on two algorithms. It works yeah. on the amount of time you actually spend in the vehicle, mm. as in whether you get caught in traffic or not. And it also, you know, works on, on, um, on the actual distance covered. And don't quote me on this, but I, I think it sort of takes an average of those two factors. Yeah. Um, but if you're less than eight dollars, it'll always round you up to a minimum of eight dollars. Okay. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, from my workplace to my home, it's always less, but it rounds up to about eight bucks, which is pretty decent. Yeah. Okay. You know. Um. Yeah, I have not used it in Perth yet. Have um, you used it elsewhere? Because no. I've used it. Oh, in, actually, yeah, I have not used it at all. I've elsewhere. used it in Melbourne. I've used it in London. Yeah. Um. And that was where I really got on to it because my friend um, in London was using it. And I mean, we were out pissed as newts in some mm. club in East London and, and got an Uber back to her place in the South. And it was something, you know, like, I think it was 20 quid, 18, 20 quid. That's the alarm to say space stations flying over at some point. Right. Not sure where. Um, so it was about 18, 20 quid, and a taxi would have been 50 quid. So the savings speak for themselves, plus you're getting a nicer quality service. Yeah. You know, you're okay. not getting into some dirty taxi. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, some of the cabs in, in Sydney are just pretty revolting. I kind of want to be an Uber driver once the legalities of. Well, the legalities have been sorted out in WA. I mean, which which is, well, I, I can only go by what my my um, extended family was telling me the other day. But I thought New South well New South Wales just the week before Christmas has actually um, regulated Uber officially, so that one dollar from every fare goes to the government mm -hmm. to cover insurance and those sort of things. Yeah, which I is think, which is just a good peace of mind. You know? I think they've said that they're going to do it but it's not yet in place. Mm. And so the last time I was looking at signing up, people still getting fines for being Uber drivers. So I was just like, well, I, I don't need that stress in my life to running away from trying to work out who's an undercover transport person. Look, it is the way of the future, mm. you know, and I actually feel strongly that um, the taxi industry should take a hard look at itself mm. when it's trying to lay blame for its demise because they've refused to modernise. Yeah. I mean, I... It's sort of it's out of their hands. Though. Don't they have to pay, like, licence fees? Like, it's a big cost to get a taxi oh, licence plan. I feel very sorry for your average driver because mm. they're paying huge overheads that they really can't recoup. Yeah. And, and that's around the licensing arrangements. But at the end of the day... You know, they're taking home ten or eleven dollars an hour, yep. which we shouldn't be allowing people to 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 work for such such a, a low wage mm -hmm. in this country. And if most people knew that, I think they would be appalled. Yeah. But um, no, with Uber, 
I mean, I ask every Uber driver I, I use um, how long you've been driving Uber, and I reckon more than 50% of them say, oh, well, I just started last week. So it's, it's clearly on the uptake. Mm. But also, um, you know, they tell me that they're, they're averaging $35, $40 an hour. Okay. So... The one problem with Uber is I don't think they're actually a very good ethical company. <laughs> like, they... Um, everything you do is tracked. And are you? I'm sure you've heard about it, but in San Francisco, or in America, they've actually... Um, they track um, journalists um, uh, where they go so that if they ever write something bad about Uber, they go, oh, well you obviously visited this brothel on this date and we have that against you because we've got evidence to um, show that you were you got dropped off at that distance and maybe it just happened to go to a business next to that brothel, but who's to know? We could just put the rumour out there and they don't seem to be the most kind company on the planet. Well, I don't know about that, but I can share that I recently... <laughs> but the idea is fine. Well, the idea is good. I mean, it's not to say it doesn't need some refinement. I've just gone through hell because I upgraded my iPhone Mm. and then I had troubles with the new Uber app. And so I had to go onto their actual website and try and find some customer support. Yeah. And that was difficult. Yeah. You know, Mm. I I, I was on the website for 10 minutes before Mm. I found one obscure reference to an email address I could actually email for help. Yeah. Because my question just simply wasn't answered on any of their frequently asked question pages. Yeah. And as it turns out, my friend had signed me up. We were both a little bit pissed at the time. Yeah. And he'd obviously made a typo in my email address, which is a very long one. Ah. And and so, notwithstanding that, um, when you go to their reset page, you are asked to type in your email address. But yeah. then it's not recognizing what you type in. Mm-hmm. It's only sending to the email address they have on file. Yeah. So because that had a boo-boo, um, I was just not getting the reset yeah. email. Mm-hmm. And and to make matters worse, you know, I emailed them and said, I have done all of these things and it's not working for me and I supplied all of the information and blah, 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 blah. And I got mm-hmm. a very stock standard email back saying, Oh, just go to this page and do such and such, yeah. which I'd explained in my email I'd already done 15 <laughs> times and it hadn't worked. So I found that rather frustrating. But about another 24 hours later, they emailed me again and sorted out the problem. So I'm yeah. all good to go again. And I will keep, keep using their service because I think for less money, they're actually providing a better service than taxis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, taxis definitely need a shake-up. They do. I mean, I have to go to these early meetings in in the suburbs sometimes. And, uh, you know, I'm leaving the house at 20 past seven in the morning. Well, I need to know that I've got a reliable transport service. And I have called a taxi and then called up at the time it was actually due and said, well, it's not here yet. And they say, oh, well, you should have told us it was an urgent request. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it is now an urgent request because there's no taxi here, but I thought if I called one for a certain time, it would be here. But that's not the way they operate. Yeah, yeah. So, do you have... what? Where is your social life base? Is it work-based? Um, 
Well, in my council job, I have a lot of functions and social things I need to go to. Yeah. Okay. You know. So you still uh, an I'm elected s- councillor? I'm still an elected oh. councillor. How long yeah. has that got to go? Well, that's a vexed question because um, the Friday before Christmas, the, the Premier of New South Wales announced that he would um, be completely disregarding the views of local communities completely disregarding the expert analysis that councils have undertaken um, around their future sustainability and why we are opposed to forced amalgamations of councils. And he instead announced a plan to force the merger of councils across New South Wales, um, a lot in regional areas, but in the city area as well. And so the proposal for my council is to be merged with two other councils, producing a council area with 255,000 people, um, with vastly reduced local representation, mm. um, increased rates for people living in my area, and um, you know a total loss of local identity. And we think this is despicable. So my council in particular is fighting this tooth and nail. But uh, as we should, um, but it's been a very um, tough time and a lot of uncertainty going on for particularly the last 12 months and more intensely over the last three months. And now uh, it seems uh, clear that the government will have to go through a public inquiry mm. in order to change the boundaries. They can't move legislation to just force the mergers because they don't have the support of the crossbenchers in the upper house which is a good thing, Um, but they'll have to go through this public inquiry, which we are hopeful will expose all of the issues and produce a roadblock that means that this doesn't happen. Mm. Um, But it does does seem that the government's intent with pressing ahead with it, and that'll be problematic for, for me and for the future of my area you know so it's 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 not like i um am although i'm fearful of losing that that job of mine it's also um a tragedy that the whole council will be lost and swallowed up into a bigger area that's not effective at protecting the specific local interests okay so i have two things so that means you're actually considering recontesting your position like at the next election? I don't know what position I would be recontesting at this stage and I still believe there is a good chance that we can defeat the whole proposal for amalgamations. Mm. So it it could be that I'm recontesting my my position as a local councillor in my area. They tried to do that here in Perth and we defeated it. I I did very little in terms (laughs) of... I think I signed a pamphlet but I didn't go to any of the rallies. But I live in the city of Vincent, which is basically North Perth, the sort of inner North Perth. And it's become... uh, We've actually had quite a few good councils over the last decade, and it's become one of the most vibrant areas of Perth, Um, not just because of our council being really good, but also um, the fact that some of the other councils have killed themselves, like Subiaco has become this gentrified... Mm. zombie town where there's nothing interesting happening. There's no anymore. life. There's no life. Gentrification kills diversity. Yeah. And so it's, 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 it's just a poor, an appalling um, trend. And the town of Vincent really went to war. Uh, this is my local council and they really said, look, we're going to turn, instead of dumbing down it, we're going to try and work to make sure that all the suburbs in our 
um, local council have their little niche area that becomes a bit of an urban village and they've encouraged small bars to open and um, festivals to happen and allowed food trucks on the streets and people allowed to eat on the curbs and restrict reduce all the paperwork to do all that kind of stuff, I guess. And, and has that been well received by locals? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, so, I mean, what that says to me is yeah. you've got a local council that actually mm. understands its demographic, that understands what's important mm. to local residents and it's delivering for them. But so why do you want to shut that down? You know, as soon as you get a bigger council that's less connected mm. to its local residents, has fewer representatives that are actually from this area. Yeah. Because, I mean, what we have 15 councillors in my area yeah. and what we're looking at under the merger proposal is maybe we'll have two. Yeah, yeah. Well, how can they? How can they actually deliver for the specific interests that are important to people yeah. who live in those areas? So just yeah, just in our little council, that's quite small, but it's one of the most diverse areas. Of Perth, we've got now got a really diverse cafe strip in North Perth, really diverse, which is a classical strip on Leederville and mm-hmm. um, Beaufort Street in Mount Lawley have have always been quite things, but North Perth is suddenly grown without diminishing Mount Lawley or Leederville and also Mount Hawthorne just up the road has flourished without having without impacting the main classic strips of Leederville and Mount Lawley. Um, and what the the amalgamations want to do is um, the city of Perth, which is like the main council where the CBD is, wanted to absorb like Beaufort Street and Leederville because they're the, like, the famous sort of locations in our council. And, you know, so they have them under their wing but also they're going to spread their iron thin. And so if there's any cool event that happens in Leaderville or Mount Law, they're going to say, well, we should probably have it in Forest Chase or <laughs> the new Elizabeth Quay. And, you know, you know that's not going to help this area. And the rest of the council, like North Perth and Mount Holton, will be put into Stirling Council, which is this just suburban robot council that literally cuts down every tree in case there's a bushfire in the middle of the city. And you go out to these areas and it has no... These suburbs under the council have no soul whatsoever. They're mm. just like barren wastelands that... Um, you know, I, I kind of get... Like when people say Perth's boring, I kind of get it. If you live in the city <laughs> city of Stirling, <laughs> I get what you mean because they're horrible. Like apart from um, Kulbinia, I think, which is in this, technically in the city of... Um, once you go past that, it's just a dead zone, a zombie wasteland. And... Um, it doesn't have any of the character of the western or inner northern suburbs of Perth, you know. Um, well, half of Mount Lawley is in um, Stirling. Yeah. And... You get, there's a big difference when you cross the... Yeah, there is. And, and, and those people would much prefer to be in the... Um, in Vincent. But, I mean, a lot of it... And, and my um, aunt actually works in Vincent mm. in, in, for the council. So, so, so I've got quite an insight into, into the successes of, of Vincent. And it's also about protecting local identity. Because yeah. a lot of what local councils do is responsible for development and for planning. Um, big scale um, urban planning projects as well as small scale, you know, residential developments. Yeah. And, and the con- development controls that they have in place are all about protecting things that are important to local people. Yeah. If you live in a, in a heritage area, most people buy into that, that street or that suburb because they actually like old buildings and they want to yeah. see that preserved. Yeah. And, you know, the city of Stirling is too big. It doesn't understand those specific niche, um, issues about protecting local neighborhood character Mm. and it's just a one-size-fits-all approach 
So you, you need to have smaller councils that are focused on um, on those issues that are important to people that live there. I mean, where, where, where I represent people in Wallara, it's about um, heritage conservation is a massive issue. Mm. We've got some of the most um, significant heritage conservation areas in, in the whole country. Um, and we're a harbourside council, so it's also about protecting um, people's views and having... Um, and their outlook to the harbour, as well as a whole range of um, ecological issues to do with the sustainability of um, marine biodiversity and that interface between um, between where people live and and the natural asset that is Sydney Harbour. Yeah. So it's it's and also trees. I have to say. I mean, we're very proud that there's over forty thousand trees in our council area, which um, is something like a twelve square kilometre area. It's very, very tiny. Yeah. But the amount of trees and the, and the tree canopy is, is a significant feature that is noticeable to anybody that comes into the area. And compared to the neighbouring area of, of Waverley, where it's proposed to be amalgamated with, it's virtually a desert. Yeah. So um, that's something that people are very, very worried about, is that, that we won't see that. It's crazy that the, the preserved. there's only, a, you know, most of... Town of Vincent is sort of heritage stuff, but the there are some greenfield sites where they've um, you know they've taken down some old factory and built built some apartments and and in ten years the foliage, just the tree foliage and the um, is bigger than you know di- the suburb Dianella, which is which you know was a new suburb when I was a child, but it's has no excuses now. It's been around for many many years and it's mm. like a desert and literally i have this new job now where i have to drive through dianella and like going driving out there is it's like five degrees hotter out there than driving mm. into the, even though they're the same distance from the ocean as um Leederville and mount hawthorne just because it is a desert without any trees it's just baking in the sun and it's, yeah. look it doesn't make any sense in a country like Australia with such a harsh climate that you wouldn't have more trees yeah. and you know further to that the practical benefits of trees it's been studies have proven that trees make people feel younger and more alive mm. and more happy to live where they live if, if there's a large urban tree canopy yeah it's annoying because we had our, our street tree got um you know, termites or something, and they had to knock it down. We can't have we've, we've tried to replace it with twenty different trees, and obviously there's something in the ground that keeps poisoning, or one of our neighbours is poisoning it because they're assholes. We don't know, but it's um, the other the people up here who had their trees taken down because of the white ant problem have had replacements, and their trees in just the ten years since it got taken down are bigger than any tree in Dianella. You know, like mm-hmm. it's just crazy. Um, well, I think it also, um, if you have good regulations around tree protection, you ultimately instill a culture um, in, in the people that live there around valuing trees. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the only thing we can't stop where I live is the, the people, the, 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 the state-owned corporation that controls the power lines coming in and just hacking away at the trees yeah. indiscriminately, really. And it, it, it shits me no end because they... They do cut indiscriminately. Mm. They don't cut to maintain the health and the shape of that tree. So what you get if you just lop 
a branch yeah. off because it's near a power line is epicormic growth. Yeah. In other words, the tree's so stressed out, it just puts out thousands of shoots and you get all this messy growth and then the whole shape of the tree is destroyed and, and then the next time they come to cut it, the, 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 there's more justification to just remove the tree altogether. Yeah. But, mm. um, you know, the, the Osgrid guys were there in my street trying to cut prune a tree the other day and i must have been the fourth person that went up to them in the 20 minutes they were there and just said what the hell are you doing yeah yeah you know and then they gave me a bit of lip and because i hear it i mean i live in a cul-de-sac i could hear every word so i went back and challenged them again and just said you know (laughs) people here care about trees I, i don't give a shit that you don't care about trees and you're getting your jollies by cutting stuff down um you know this is important to us I mean, ideally, they should be, you know, installing the MBN in the ground and while they're doing it, putting in underground power at the same time, killing two birds with one stone and uh, saving a lot of money on that front. And then they don't have to pay people to cut trees back every year. You know, save it's, money. Yeah, it's very expensive to put it in underground, though. I mean, you're talking about 100 grand mm. for a block of... Yeah, but they assuming that MBN exists, they would be digging up the road anyway. They could be doing it at the same time and saving a ton of money. Yeah, well, I was listening to some report the other day about somebody, some technology expert, just saying that you know Malcolm Turnbull must have been aware that he was giving us a second-class NBN when he was relying on oh, copper wires and stuff. You know, he 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 has to be aware of of what he's delivering. Um, and the time to do it was, you know... His wife definitely has shares in some copper technology company. <laughs> you know, there's no doubt about it. He's going to benefit hugely from it. He's going to get a huge... Either that or as soon as he retires from being PM or gets kicked out, he's going to get a huge golden parachute from Murdoch, who has Foxtel, and it protects Foxtel's monopoly here. That's um, right. It's um, it's a insane. shame more people don't know that because you're absolutely right. And, mm. and that is the point that, that, that really explains the government's whole approach, which is totally subpar and wasting a lot of money to deliver, oh, yeah. to deliver if, a product you know, if that's they came fundamentally out and said, subpar. If they came out and said, look, we're scrapping all together and we're just going to let private companies um, build out networks as demand requires, well, that would be kind of the conservative approach. But this approach is like, no, not only we're we going to build it, we're going to build a product that no one will pay for and we're just going to throw away $40 billion for a product that no one will actually buy. Like by the time they finish building this subpar network, your phones will be so fast that why would you ever pay for a second internet connection when you already have one on your phone? You know, it's insane. Well, mm. so much of the Liberal Party's agenda is delivering for vested interests. They have mm. very little deal, very little interest in actually delivering for um, for you and me as the taxpayer yeah. and giving us a good deal. It's it's a tragedy, but it's the truth. Um, There's no other logical explanation for yeah. why you would deliver a um, a copper wire based NBN and one that you know is going to. It's already gone. It's already come out that it's going to be $17 billion more expensive. $17 mm. billion than they, they uh, lied. Imagine someone just stealing $17 billion with the government and yet Malcolm Turgable, he's no one questions it because people in the media, it's their vested interest to not because an NBN would allow smaller media companies to rise and compete against them. So they don't want to report it because it's against their interest, you know. I thought that's what the Liberal Party was all about. Yes, yeah, small business. Letting the marketplace dictate the best price for yeah. the consumer. I've come to realise that the Liberal Party aren't really 
represent anyone. They, well, that's not true. They represent, they represent who, corporations. who has the checkbook that mm. pay for them. They don't have any policy that represents anybody. Yeah. Well, all the more need to um, reform donations laws in this country and institute a um, system of public donations like they do uh, in Canada where donations to, to political parties are fundamentally capped such that you can limit the influence that big corporations have on our democracy. Because ultimately, you know, our government should be delivering for you and me. Yeah. They shouldn't be delivering for big corporate interests. Exactly. So, I, going back early, so you were a bit unsure about how you, um, whether you would seek another term, but now you feel like this is an issue you have to see out, like you're going to... I will fight the good fight uh, for my council, but um, and yeah, so it, so really, I I maintain an optimistic um, outlook that we can defeat the government's amalgamation proposal. I mean, I I do think the premier is, you know, our premier is a merchant banker. He he seems to apply this maxim that uh, economies of scale will always deliver better results. Mm. That bigger is better. But I fundamentally believe that when it comes to such a curious beast as local democracy, that maxim is completely inapplicable. Yeah. So um, I'm confident that through this public inquiry process we can, we can make the case um, and that we can preserve our independence and keep our councils local. Um, but if, if, if the government pushes through and, and sidelines the community's view... Hmm. Um, and, and I mean, in, in my area, more than 80% of people support that view. So it's, it's strongly supported. But if the government ignores that and presses ahead, then we, then, then I will have to reconsider my position, but I'm not really prepared to do that until such time as, as I have to. Yeah. Yeah. Back to real life. I think you, uh, went to Europe this year. I did. Um, going back a few months. Um, where did you go? This was a bit of a was like your sort of a delayed thirtieth birthday present. No, not at all. It no, was a, a um, an excuse to go. No, it was a gift. All oh, right. Yeah. Both my parents were sixty this year, so oh, it's their so 60. they oh, wanted yeah. our whole family to be together in the Amalfi Coast, oh, wow. which was just an absolutely sublime treat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, I flew to Paris. I had. Four nights in Paris, and then I went to London to see a friend for a week, mm-hmm. and then I went to Amsterdam, which I just adore. Yeah, I love the Netherlands. How how long did you spend there? Um, just two nights. Yeah. Then I had to meet a friend um, for a big dinner in Rome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I I spent uh, three nights in Naples. Finally went to Napoli, um, which was just a dream. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. And then I had, and then I had a week in um, Positano. Yeah, Amalfi Coast. And so, were you doing a bit of a, a eating and drinking tour? Like, did you what? What were the highlights? Um, in Positano, 
Well, like, what do, do, what do you eat in London or Paris to start off with? In Paris, the best meal was a fusion Japanese restaurant, um, French-Japanese fusion called mm. Nanashi. Okay. In the Marais area. Um, absolutely exquisite food. It's got probably interesting combination because they both appreciate subtle flavors mm, very delicate simple fresh food has a beautiful swordfish with brown rice and a lovely seaweed salad mm-hmm. um in london i went to a place called quo Vedas mm-hmm. in soho which was one that that um my friend had a recommendation but sh- and she was quite keen to try it and we had the most amazing meal. Yeah. We both ordered the anglais, which is a particular cut of the veal against the liver of the beast. Oh, yeah. So it's a very juicy, tender, and not, not that I'm a big red meat eater, but I made an exception. <laughs> and so this was, this was served with a pickled, um, pickled walnut with asparagus and with a beautiful, like, horseradish type of puree. Mm-hmm. So just all the flavours were just absolutely explosive. It was a wonderful... That was probably the, the best meal. And then in Italy... Oh, I should say in Holland, um, I met up with Sean, Poppy's sister. Oh, right. Brother. Yeah. Okay. Um, who took me out to a restaurant that specialised in gin, all manner of all manner of gin and tonic, like you wouldn't believe, and mussels. Mm-hmm. That was a fantastic meal. And gin then and mussels, mm, gin and mussels. Story. It is, but it works. Trust yeah, me, okay. it works. Um, and then in Italy, I mean, we ate at Michelin star restaurants a couple mm-hmm. of nights, but by far the best meal was about thirty euros a head. Yeah. And it's right up on the top of the hill. You have to catch this little transit bus to get up there. And winds its way all up the hill. It was a bit of a nerve-wracking experience. It was much easier coming down the hill after all the wine that we'd consumed. Yeah. But it's a family-run restaurant, and they brought out seriously 12 plates of antipasto. Okay. From the spinach wow. to the bufalina to the prosciutto to everything. So this is still in Amsterdam. No, this was in oh, Positano. Yeah, okay, Positano. Okay, yeah. And uh, then they brought out four different pastas. Then they brought out about 12 different meats. Then they brought out about six different dolci. Wow, I'm just hungry to think about this. Beautiful um, wine that they made themselves, chilled red wine. Mm-hmm. And um, at the end of the night, they brought out their own limoncello. Yeah. But having a kind face, as I do... I was a target of the karaoke. Oh dear! Because the um, the wifey of the whole family outfit was quite the entertainer, so mm-hmm. she came out and sang to us a couple of numbers, and then she decided to involve people in the performance. Yeah, <laughs> and I was I was sitting pretty much smack bang in the middle of the restaurant, and she took quite a liking to me, so. Mm. I did sing O Solo Mio to an entire restaurant. O Solo Mio. Oh, it's much easier after many glasses of red wine. Yeah. But um, the funniest thing was she brought out um, a number of different instruments as well, Mm -hmm. like tambourines and whatnot. And then there was a a sort of um, 
percussion instrument that stood about a metre high and there was a rather bizarre family at the table adjacent to us. And, you know, my, my crew was, a, we were eight yeah. people. So um, this table was just husband and what I suspected was a stepmother and these two kids that were maybe 10 and 11, these two boys. Well, the younger one, I watched him have a shot of this homemade limoncello Mm. and then he was just completely set off you know and he took (laughs) to this percussion instrument with willful abandon like there was no tomorrow yeah yeah (laughs) meanwhile the stepmother was just there kind of freaking out and not knowing what to do (laughs) no it was a very 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 fun filled evening so and that, that was to me that was that was Positano. Positano. To me that that did it more than And that than... was just you by yourself. No, that was with the whole family. With the whole family. Okay. Yeah, so we all went up there. And we had, you know, amazing meals every night and and we mm-hmm. went to two different Michelin starred places when we were there. Mm-hmm. But my favorite meal was this one with the family restaurant at the top of the hill and the karaoke. I just yeah. thought it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um but one night also we because we, we rented a villa, which was just the, the best villa in the whole place. Had an amazing terrazzo, you know, right, the huge terrace. And the, the, whole, the whole of Positano was built into the hill mm. and it's a very steep cliff going up from the beach. So we were quite near to the actual um, beach, but still with an amazing view. And anyhow, the um, housekeeper... She came and cooked for us one evening. And so she she bought all the fresh ingredients and she made all of the different antipasto. Mm-hmm. And then she made two different pastas for us. And I mean, it was just... And, and tiramisu. Tiramisu. So it was just an absolutely um, wonderful, wonderful meal. Yeah. That sounds great. Mm. Um, we went to Capri for a day. Okay. We had a sort of a few different excursions. So yeah. we... We went on a went on a little little boat and and because we were eight people we could do stuff like that you yeah, know we yeah. chartered this little boat for the day and my mum kind of fell in love with the twenty five year old Italian guy that was driving <laughs> the boat and another day we went to Pompeii yeah which I'd always wanted to wanted to see um, and another day we went to Ravello mm-hmm. which is up in the the hills on the Amalfi Coast and there's the most amazing, beautiful gardens up there that were really quite breathtaking. So that was that was really enjoyable too. Mm. Um, so what, what do you do on the boat? Is it just you just drive around and look for places to swim or was it summer? Oh, it was peak season. Yeah, peak season. It was yeah. just coming into summer. Mm-hmm. We went to Capri, yeah. the island of Capri. Um, and we saw the Blue Grotto, oh, yeah. which is totally run by the mafiosa. Oh, yeah. um, so it's it's nine euros a person to go into the Blue Grotto. Oh, right, yeah. You're in the Blue Grotto for, I reckon, about 35 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got to get into these tiny little boats with these manky, manky drivers or people rowing the boats, you know, who mm. are smoking cigarettes and carrying on and asking for 20 euro tips minimum. Yeah. Um, and it's just ab- abject chaos. There's all these little boats trying to get into, because the, the entrance to the Blue Grotto, you basically have to duck 
Yeah. I don't know what it's like at low tide, but it's, it's, it's from the water level to the top of the opening must have been like a meter. Yeah. So yeah. there's a rope and, and the guy steering the boat, you know, pushes the boat through and hauls you through using the rope. Yeah. And you just duck. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you go into this amazing sort of cavern that's underwater and the, there's this kind of really blue glow mm-hmm. inside the whole cavern. Yeah. But I have to say, I mean, it was, the highlight of the day was probably just hanging out on the boat and finding a little bay where we could all sort of dive off the boat and have a swim. And What did you eat on the boat? We didn't. We, we stopped at a seafood restaurant. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. Which was quite a funny story because um, we ordered, and we were starving actually, yeah. and we ordered, and then our food didn't come out for about an hour. Because uh, sitting two minutes after we walked in, the mafi- mafioso bosses walked in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there was about six of them, and they were huge boys, you know, yeah. massively obese people. Yeah. And, um, I mean, they, ha- they ordered so much food, they had to bring a side table in order to put out all of their plates of seafood. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the poor old um, restaurateur was just totally shitting himself and <laughs> they had to just divert all of their resources into feeding these oh, wow. fat mafia bosses. <laughs> and my mum was getting quite stressed that we yeah. weren't getting our meal and everything. And I just said, mum, there's nothing we can do. Just, <laughs> just pipe down. We don't want to get any looks. From the next table. <laughs> Did you ever buy your own food to take home and make? Like, you get go out and buy some meats and some preserves and make your own sandwiches at home? Or No, we didn't. But um, to thank my parents for the trip, my brother and sister and I paid for a um, what was... Um, quite expensive, I thought, but then after we had the experience, it was worth every penny. Um, we paid for a cooking class. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So we went into um, this seaside restaurant and had about two hours of, of cooking class. And, like, the first thing they did was pour us a glass of Prosecco, so mm. I knew it was going to be in for a good, good time. But mm-hmm. we made and learned how to make arancini. Mm-hmm. I learned how to make eggplant parmigiana properly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we made, what was the sweet? Profiteroles. Profit oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we made a, I think we made it, we learned how to make a proper tomato sauce. Yeah. And, you know, I've been cooking Italian food for a long time, but I learned things, elementary things, mm-hmm. that I had no awareness of, you know. Like about what to do with garlic and how much to put in and how little you actually need. But mm. if you do the processes properly, you extract the full flavour. That's true. I found mm. that. I found definitely sometimes I've like, um, there's this creamy pasta that my mum makes that she calls carbonara, but it's not really. I think it's more of an Alfredo because it's creamy rather than I don't think real carbonara is that creamy. But, um, the it, it the, the the more onion uh, garlic flavor it has, the better it is basically. And I've made it with like, I've made it on different occasions, and I've made it with literally like 
two whole, what do you call them? Cloves. Cl- no, like the whole Heads. thing. The whole thing that's got like mm. 20 cloves, you know, and it's not tasted as good as like, you know, one where you've just had put two cloves, single cloves in, but you've actually done it properly or got the right kind of garlic. Um, well, the right kind of oil. Right kind of oil. Which, was, which was a huge learning for me. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, you shouldn't use olive oil okay. and heat it up. Yeah. Extra virgin olive oil should be used for salads. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it, it should be served cold. Um, you actually fuck with the const, um, with the, the elements in the oil mm. if you heat it up and then it's not at all healthy for you. The yep. way that olive oil is really healthy. Um, so, yeah, we were using just vegetable oil, but then just flavouring it with two or three clo- um, cloves of garlic. Mm-hmm. Not, not any more than that. Yeah, okay. And then he actually took the garlic out okay. when he put the tomato in, so it didn't yeah. even need to stay in. Yeah. So he was just trying to put the flavour in the oil? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Sounds good. And um, I've replicated the eggplant parmesan mm-hmm. since I've been home, but it's a lot tastier if you've got a deep fryer and you can deep fry the, <laughs> the eggplant in the batter first. Yeah, I have this wild uh, fantasy of, like, getting, you know... Have you seen the movie Poco Rosso by no. Miyazaki? It's it's an animated film about this pig who was a pilot in uh, a, a war, an air war in Italy, probably when fascism was introduced, and um, he. Uh, he has a base on an island which actually looks more like some one of those Thai islands on the bay mm. um, that, you know, kind of probably inspired by places like the Blue Grotto where you kind of, he flies the players in under the cave and then goes out into a bay inside that's a circle it's within the island. You know. Well, just as an aside, you do get those beautiful um, islands that, that look like the formations you see off the coast of Thailand and Vietnam. Um Around Capri, there's some mm. some quite famous ones that you might recall from. Yeah, well, from I'm the assuming James Bond that's films. it's set in Italy, so I'm assuming he's based on places in Italy. But when I was in Thailand, I was like, wow, this looks more like the place that he was talking about. But I've I've never been to Italy outside of Venice. When were you in Thailand? Was that recent? 2008. Oh, okay. I got dragged there by a friend, right. and um, it was good because I got dragged there. I would never go there by myself. And, um, you know, we just, it was very gentrified experience. Like, you know, we stayed in a, a five-star resort that, which was dirt cheap as you do. You ate yeah. dirt cheap pad thai and fried rice and you went on a boat tour out into these islands. Um, the, the actual holiday was very, like it, the journey there was more exciting because I got, I went from Paris to Thailand because I was in Paris at the time. My friend was like, hey, do you want to meet me in Thailand? I was like, yes. I've got nothing better to do. <laughs> and um, and I had to fly home but to Perth anyway, so I was like, well, I might as well go to Thailand instead of mm. through Dubai, whatever I was normally going. And, um, but I, on the train from my place in Paris to the airport, I got mugged. 
Oh. And uh, I had to, f- I went to, almost missed my flight trying to fly, uh, get a police report in time and then flew this weird <laughs> through the, through Bahrain maybe? Flew through Bahrain instead of Dubai and it was a bit weird. I sat next to this guy with long hair and in a traditional Arabian white thing. I don't know what you call it. I don't know what you call that. You know, white cloth. I know what you mean. And he took his shoes off. As soon as the seatbelt sign off went, he took his shoes off, left them behind and disappeared and didn't come back until the seatbelt sign went back again 10 hours later. I don't know where he went, but I was sure I was on a terrorist flight and he was in the toilet setting up a bomb <laughs> because this is post 9-11. And he just, it was just weird. Like, where the hell did he, where does someone go for 10 hours on a plane? Not as high. And leave behind usual. his shoes. At least take his shoes with you, if you know. Because mm. um, I was like, okay, he's leaving by his shoes because he wants to know, he wants people to not know it's him if the plane blows up and the shoes will be evidence that they were at his seat at the time. So it can't have been him that... So, you know, these are the things you think put through your head. But here you are, safely. Yeah, you know, still alive and well. Bloody Americans putting in my head. Um, but that was weird. And then I got to Bangkok, and um, I was like, I had an hour. Well, I could have waited around because my f- my friend got into Bangkok a few hours early, so they'd actually gone into Bangkok to a famous street which is Khao San Road probably Khao San Road yeah I don't I just know that if you said that there must be it because it's the road you go to if you're in Bangkok and so I was like okay I've got to I came out of the airport and says look I've only got an hour I've got to meet my friend at Khao San Road and he's just like sure get in and he puts his pedal to the floor and we're going down the freeway at like 160 k's an hour when he's going slow like, that's his slow speed when he's almost approaching the bumper of the person in front of him. And it was the scariest ride of my life. Didn't think I would get out of it alive. Because I was just like, this is the dodgy old Toyota Camry from 1980. And he's just coming up to cars and just pumping the brakes. I'm like, these brakes are going to fail at this speed. Sure, I'm sure he's an experienced driver. He can probably deal with random interactions at that 180 kilometer hour speed. But what if... There's a technical failure. Mm. Very scary. And we got to there, got to Calisan Road, and um, we got there and I was just like, oh, well, we might as well go back. So I met my friend at Calisan Road for all of five seconds. I was in Bangkok, out of the taxi. <laughs> got her, threw her back in it because I paid the driver to just wait for us because I was like, oh, well, we want to get back to our flying time, so we might as well just... I'm not sure that I have enough time because my flight came in late. And... Um, we fanged back to the airport at the same speed of the same driver and it was just one of the most surreal experiences of my life. Um, I recommend it. Get mugged in Paris, fly to Bangkok, drive into Bangkok at 160 kilometers an hour when you're braking in front of the, a car in front of you. Pick up your friend and then take him back to the airport and then fly to some wherever people go in time. I don't even know where we went. I just got on the same plane as my well, friend. Did you go south to see the islands or, or did you go... Um, it was one of the f- f- places people go. Right. And I can never remember the name of it, but because I 
literally she planned the whole trip. I just followed her. Well, I, I've only spent a couple of days in, in Thailand and it was in Bangkok. And after spending a month in Burma, I decided I'd fly back to Australia via Thailand and have a couple of days in mm. a resort. And I was curious to see Khao San Road. And, you know, I'd spent a, a month in a country that was, you know, just next door and totally impoverished and not ever modernised in terms of tourism the mm. way that Thailand has over the last several decades. And, you know, I just, I did find it really quite a depressing experience to see mm. how many, um, to see how they cater to, you know, many an obese English tourist. Yeah. You know, people drinking first thing in the morning and rocking up to, you know, get their feet massaged on the street <laughs> and, you know, but it's really quite chauvinistic mm. and imperialist and disgusting i i had a hard time with it but you know the other flip side of it i suppose is that it brings economic prosperity to mm. that society where they wouldn't otherwise um be able to to, to survive so yeah. there is there is a valuable economic argument to it i just think it's pretty the, the, the attitude of, of many many of those tourists is is completely wrong mm. Yeah, it's it's totally corrupted their culture. <laughs> the places we went, obviously we only went to because it was literally a tourist trip. It was we only went to places where. And I'm I'm fairly anti-tourist. Like I hate tourism. I hate being a tourist. So I only went there because I was the adventure of someone saying, "Oh, I just meet me in Bangkok at this time," and it was kind of a romantic idea. So I went. Um. But. You know, I've been to Paris many, many times. I've never been to the Louvre because I'm just like, I just, it's just a tourist trap. I don't want to be involved with that. I didn't rubbish. bother going to the Louvre this time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I stayed in the Marais area, which I love. Yeah. And I, I just felt like a local for a couple of days, you know, yeah. which was lovely. Yeah, that was... Um, I haven't really done that in Paris. I, I did stay once with my... One of the times I went, um, my uncle was living there, so I stayed in his apartment instead of a hotel. And, um, you know, that was kind of nice, but then he, he hadn't he hadn't really, um, what's the word, assimilated to Parisian culture, so we didn't do anything Parisian miles with him. And I stayed there. I rented a, an apartment. The 2000 trip, I just all I did was rent an apartment there for a month. Um and um, so I guess I kind of assimilated in a way, but I didn't have enough money to kind of go out all the time. <laughs> I had the same money I had in Perth, which at the time in Paris got you half as what as much as what you'd buy, pay for in Perth. So yeah, I spent most of my time just reading books in the apartment and trying to do some writing, which I sort of failed at. I think I have to go back again. Now I'm more of a prolific writer. I'd, so what are you writing at the moment? I don't know. I, I'm, I've just sort of finished a project, so I'm thinking of what to do next. And I kind of want to write a novel, because I've never written a novel. Even though I've been writing sort of screenplays for the last three years. And um, it's a very different art form. <laughs> so I don't know if I can adapt. I've gotten better at the screenplays. I got a, um, a grant 
to develop my screenplay with the state government. And um, So is that the project you've just completed? Well, I did it last year and this year has been... I got a scholarship to develop it this year, like where they paid for people to, you know, read the script and critique me and say how to improve the next draft kind of thing. Because um, filmmaking, it's, you know... The, 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 it's very unsatisfying writing a film because it's basically just a, it's just all you're doing is writing the blueprint for a movie not many people actually at the end of the day not many people ever read the script you know the director mm. reads it the actors read it um, a couple of people in the cast will read the sections that are relevant to them it's not like an actual document that's an art form you know you're just writing you're just building the bones you don't have nothing to do with the skin and the flesh and the hair and the makeup on top of that. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's a tool that you use to produce the, the finished product, which is the film, I guess. And But it's so hard to make a film that I kind of, you know, I'm getting so frustrated about not being able to just say, hey, you know, like you've had the uh, your launches for your play. I want to have a launch like that and say hey this is a complete product um and it wouldn't be cool to have a party and say here's my new novel and this is an actual thing that you can sit down and read and have an enjoyable experience reading or not or hate it and critique it but critiquing a screenplay is kind of like you know I haven't even showed my mum or dad because they've never read a screenplay before like if I if my screenplay is the first screenplay they've ever written like what are their expectations are going to be skewed so they, they don't know whether it's good or not because they don't know what a screenplay is yeah. I don't know how many screenplays you've written I know you've written play I've written three plays James yes yeah. <laughs> none of them have ever been produced or no. performed but you still had a party to release oh, the, well maybe I wrote the play so I could have the party. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Puts you under what, pressure. What do you want to write a novel about, though? What's the What's the drive here? I just have these stories that I want to tell, I tell before I dead in my head. So are these purely fictional or are they derived from your life experiences? Oh, a combination of both. Combination. They're, they're fantasies. They're fantastical things. But like, look at everything that's produced today, it's all based on pre-existing material. It's either based on a book, it's based on a comic, it's based on a play. No one... Oh, nothing is original. Only one... No, even if you take away what's derivative of... Literally, if you go to a movie, there's a 5% chance that it's based on an original screenplay. 95% is based on a book, based on a comic, based on a play. Because no one wants to take a chance on something that hasn't been tested in another format you know? mm. or it's based on a magazine article maybe you know even or it's based on a it's a biography like you know they did the last year they had Stephen Hawking and the um, t- uh, Alan Turing were the big films at the Oscars the um, their autobiographies they're not they're not the mm. creation of the author they are, but they're not. They are, but the subject matter isn't yeah. is hardly original. I want to write something that is inspired by things like my. I'm not an original person. Like they're all derivatives. Like because my the reason I want to be an artist because I. Um. Literally, I go to read a book and I don't know what to read, and I'm looking at my bookshelf or I'm, 
if I'm going to watch a movie, I'm looking at my DVD shelf or whatever the equivalent this is, the iTunes store, and you go, I don't know what, I'm looking for something and it's just not there, so I'm trying to create the thing that I want to see or want to read. I don't know if you ever have that problem. You go, the thing that I want is not there, mm. so I have to create it. Oops. It's not my phone. Have you been writing, Matt? You le- you were a prolific writer when we were young. Um, I don't so much write for pleasure anymore. I've got so many other things I have to write for in yeah. my work that, 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 that tends to exhaust me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you miss it? or you- I do. I mean, I love writing. Yeah. Mm. You know, and, and in some extent I can find fulfilment writing in, the, in that form. But, I mean, I think... I think if you have skill as a writer, then then the greatest skill you can have as a writer is adaptability and to be able to write for multiple genres. Yeah. And you'd understand that going from writing a screenplay to writing a novel. I mean, it's, it's, it's well, vastly... I haven't, I mean, haven't, haven't done that yet. Well, but writing a, modern, writing a novel is a monster compared yeah. to, you know, any any other form of writing. It's the, it's the long form. Um, and, you know, in the moment I'm having to write a lot of fluffy... Um, type of stuff that's much more inspirational and trying to motivate people and um, and I'm also you know have had the experience of of working with a lot of people who have mental health issues and addiction issues and um, working with them to extract material is is extremely rewarding but it's a very different uh, form of writing to, to what I've been used to writing in a in a highly legalistic way um i mean there's a there's a total um a total format of writing for the law that that i was trained in that's different to writing for policy and writing for politics and writing for the media um which are all different forms that i've that i've had to learn but i think i think that's ultimately um if you have skill as a writer that's that's where it lies is in in being able to adapt your different to different formats and ultimately any piece of writing has to have in mind um who the audience is and so um that that's often the point at which you figure out what your what your genre and what your style has to be so do you have a burning idea that's slowly building in your head like maybe your journeys in the amalfi coast (laughs) i don't have a burning desire to write anything down Hmm. no they're just verbal stories to be told maybe Maybe. I mean, I, I think about travel in terms of collecting stories and life yeah. experiences that challenge us outside of the box. And it all happens in a context that's so foreign that it makes it believable in the moment mm. and all the more dramatic as a story to tell once you're back home. Um, I, think the great, I think the greatest gift of all is like being a verbal storyteller. Because there's some people out there who can tell a great story and you sit there and go, I don't think they've ever sat down and wrote this story down. It's all been processed in their head and they've told a great story because they they have no... On paper, they have no incl- inclination towards the arts, but they they just they have this urge to entertain. And so they tell these stories and they're almost oblivious to the fact that they're sort of great artists. Um I don't know if you've ever run into people like that who just... Maybe it's all a facade. Maybe they've actually sat down and written stories and formulated and put them in a process so that they can just verbally ejaculate them onto the world. Um, 
but um, I think that's the greatest art form of all. You know, this is the caveman instinct. Is if you, you know, I'm a terrible verbal storyteller. You know, um, that's kind of why I started Jimmy's Famous because I was I was like, well, maybe if I practice talking randomly to strangers, I'll get better at telling stories. But I don't do it regularly enough to ever ever get that skill up. But you just run into random people who just can tell a great story, but they don't seem to be the kind of person that would ever pick up a pen and write it down. They're just, they're just journeymen or journeywomen. Well, I think that's okay. You know, so many cultures around the world have a history, have an oral tradition, mm, you know, that yeah. doesn't actually involve documenting or writing anything down. Um, yeah, and it's more powerful in, in some respects, but... That sounds good. Mm. Well, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's been an absolute delight. On this radio journey. On this radio on this journey. Obsc- on this the world's most obscure radio station. On this beautiful balmy evening. Yeah. Event. I mean, if you were a big shot radio station, James, we wouldn't be sitting here in the open air having such a wonderful chat. Oh, definitely not. So, take my hat off to you. Thanks for coming on and being part of my project. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Bye for now. Bye, listeners. Thank you.